0: Somewhere between 20 and 30% of the food that we consume supports our brain function. That means that what we eat literally supports how we think. Our ability to reason, to create, to dream and to problem solve, it all derives from how well we nurture our bodies. That nurturing is something we're all more and more familiar with. Plant-based meals and paleo diets are all part of popular discourse, but what's often left out is how the way that we eat impacts the wellness of our planet. Right now, the practices that dominate our modern agricultural system are so far removed from the cycles of nature, so focused on short-term demands for more production, that we're losing touch with the land that sustains us, and how its health affects our long-term survival. So how do we fix the systems we have in place while still moving forward? To start, we go back to our roots. I'm Caroline modoresi tirani and this is American Metamorphosis.
1: I would call Moose every day uh, for an hour or two and just try to call Moose in and then-
0: What's the sound? (laughs) It's like, (laughs)
1: it's a a real basic like that. (laughs) So my name's Jordan Jonas. um, And I basically, for a living, I guide people on wilderness trips, on little adventures out into the mountains, try to open people's eyes to the, you know, amazing resources we have and the... what the wilderness has to offer. I think a lot of people have lost that over the years.
0: It's safe to say Jordan Jonas lives a slightly different life than most of us. He spent years hopping freight trains around the United States and living with nomadic reindeer herders in Siberia. On the reality television show Alone, he outlasted his competition by spending 77 days by himself surviving in the Arctic wilderness, in part by being the first contestant to hunt down a big game animal, a nearly 1,000 pound moose.
1: What they do is they get 10 people and you each get to pick 10 basic items. So not you can't take a gun or a Four wheeler or anything like that. You know, you take a you take a sleeping bag and a pot and a fishing hooks and a bow and arrow. You get you know get your ten basic items off a of list, and they drop you off by yourself. Jordan,
0: just so just so you know, like a, a bow and arrow is not one of my basic items. I'll just put it out there <laughs> right now.
1: That's, that's not something I got lying around.
0: But continue, continue. Yeah,
1: uh, well, yeah. They, they drop the ten folks off by themselves, and then those people stay out there and you're self recording so there's no film crew so you're you're completely isolated you get dropped off in an unfamiliar place and you somehow have to be like wow i've got to forge a life out here somehow i have to find food water shelter it's pretty amazing and overwhelming experience initially until you kind of find your rhythm out there
0: what do you mean by that what do you mean by finding your rhythm
1: you know, you can you can end up in a situation like that and really push back against it and and try to fight against it a lot. Like, ah, you know, <laughs> nature's always out to get you, and you got to try to you know wrestle with it. But on the other hand, you can kind of roll with it. You know, like any writer would, or something, or any creative person gets into a rhythm or a flow or a zone, and you can roll with the problems and come up with creative solutions. You know, you, you tap into a creativity that I otherwise wouldn't experience in, in the modern world. And it's interesting that that's in some of us and maybe untapped in a lot of us.
0: Yeah. There's a, there's a poem by P.B. Shelley, and, and he describes what you're talking about. So he's looking at this mountain, it's Mont Blanc, and he has that very similar epiphany where you can be inspired and creatively catalyzed by nature
1: Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I think it's probably where, you know, we were in nature as we developed our creative (laughs) abilities as humans.
0: Jordan believes that the problem-solving skills he used and the way he lived can be applied to lives on the grid too. For him, it's about understanding the environment around us and learning to appreciate and use it in its most organic form.
1: What's interesting in nature is risk and reward are really um, closely related so you might have to take the risk of hiking a little farther than you wanted to to get to that mountain lake but when you do it's just so epically beautiful it's really direct and i find that a lot in in outdoor living in the wilderness and stuff is you, you're you're taking your risk you're achieving your goal you're getting rewarded by it it's a little it gets a little more indirect in the modern world and so so i think when you take people out there those lessons come naturally almost.
0: It's why he now works as a guide, to share his knowledge with others who are more removed from the natural world.
1: So I do get a lot of people that come from, you know, New York or California or from other places where they didn't grow up hunting and fishing and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. So it's an opportunity to introduce them to it. And I think that when you're just out you there by yourself, all of a sudden, you know, no excuses matter. Nothing matters except are you going to move forward? Are you going to solve your problem?
0: Simply, for Jordan Jonas, nature is not just something to be tamed. It's something to be embraced. It's not a complicated subject. Instead, it's the teacher.
1: The thing about nature that's really interesting is it's very simple. All your interactions are kind of simple. Your solutions are simple in a way. The modern world has complicated things, but they're all the same lessons, you know, so when you're in nature, it's, it's actually a really good place to get the foundational lessons that you then need in life beyond that.
0: You're listening to American Metamorphosis, podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we have been looking at disruption as a force for good, a tool to address the many crises we seem to be facing today, from the lack of sustainability in our food and housing systems to rising inflation. Solving each one requires innovative thinking and coordinated action. Perhaps most importantly, responding to these crises will require transforming our perspective and understanding of risk. By the year 2050, the world's population is expected to rise to nearly 10 billion. That is an astounding number of people who will need to eat and an enormous amount of additional pressure that will be placed on the environment So how do we ensure that our food system will sustain us through the long haul? Well, we start by defining what collective sustainability means by focusing on the soil, nurturing our roots, and planting seeds for the next generation.
2: I would say that most farmers today do not have soil under their fingers, they have dirt. There's a big difference between dirt and soil. Soil is alive, dirt is not. My name is Gabe Brown. And I am a farmer rancher from near Bismarck, North Dakota. Besides that, I am part owner in an agricultural consulting company named Understanding Ag.
0: So how long have you been in the farming space?
2: My wife and I started farming and ranching right after we got out of college. So we started doing that way back in 1983 and have been farming and ranching ever since.
0: So can you describe to me, when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do when you walk outside? Can you just describe the smells, the sounds, what it's like on the farm?
2: So to walk outside in the morning, I'm. Uh, those who know me know I don't sleep a lot. So I am like to be out at sunup and the birds are always uh, starting to chirp that early in the morning. The pheasants are crowing and my dogs always greet me in the morning and we get to go for a walk and watch the deer and other wildlife and and then uh, listen to the cattle are starting to move about for the day and the sheep and the chickens and the pigs. And it's just a wonderful symphony of sound. It, it really uh, gives me a good feeling knowing that I'm farming and ranching in synchrony with nature.
0: Gabe's farm, Buzzing With Life, differs from how most farms have operated in the United States and around the world for
2: generations. If you look at agriculture today, all agriculture is is mankind trying to impose his or her will on nature. You know, we're trying to force nature, manipulate it, into doing what we want. In college, I learned about how to spray chemicals and how to till the soil and how to plant monocultures because All that mattered was farmers and ranchers, we were told you have to feed the world. So you need to produce more and more and more. Well, in order to produce more and more, you put on more chemicals, more fertilizers, and really that's causing the degradation of our ecosystems. And quite frankly, that's what put a lot of carbon that was once in the soil up in the atmosphere.
0: The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that about 22% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture, forestry, and other land use. Gabe transformed his farm to a more sustainable model by adopting a philosophy and practice known as regenerative agriculture. And can you just describe them, the methods that you use on your farm now?
2: Well, in regenerative agriculture, we learn to work in synchrony with nature, to repair, rebuild, revitalize, and restore ecosystem functions, starting with all life below the soil, moving to all life above the soil. In a teaspoonful of healthy soil, there's more microorganisms than there are people on Earth. Think about that, a teaspoonful of healthy soil. And in turn then, if we have healthy soil, we have healthy plants, healthy animals, and healthy people. So on our ranch, you're not going to see tillage. The worst thing you can do for producing nutrient-dense food is to till the soil. You don't want to destroy that home for biology. And nature does not function properly without animals. Okay, so we not only have grass-finished beef, we raise grass-finished lamb, we have pastured pork, we have 1,400 laying hens out on pasture, we have bees, you know we have this symphony of all these different animal species and insect species also.
0: How can livestock be regenerative? Because what we hear, the messaging um, from people who are extremely passionate about climate change is essentially that we really need to reduce our dependence on animals and eating meat and consuming animals, period.
2: They have a point. Animals can be very destructive. However, if you look at how soils are formed, It's this act of animals moving across the prairie, taking a bite of a plant, and then they trample that plant and and defecate on it, urinate on it. That's the fertilizer, that's the nutrient cycle. And when that plant is bitten by an animal, it starts sending off what's called root exudates down into the soil to attract more biology so it regrows. That is what sequesters carbon. We need that act to truly sequester large amounts of carbon. Now, it is a problem that we took animals off the landscape and put them in these confined animal feeding operations, but we need to get them back out onto the landscape. Because once we do, then we're going to truly be able to mitigate climate change. It's not the cow, it's the how. That's the difference.
0: Today, Gabe consults for individual farmers, large corporations, and has even testified before Congress on how to transform the agricultural system. But becoming a sought-after expert in the field happened accidentally. Gabe first faced crisis and responded by taking risks.
2: What happened, 1995, we lost 100% of our crop to hail. 1996, we lost 100% of our crop tail again. 1997, we dried out. There was a major drought here. Nobody combined or harvested anything. 1998, I lost 80% of my crop tail. The banker that I was uh, borrowing money from wasn't going to loan me money anymore. So I had to determine in my mind okay, how am I going to educate myself to be able to change my ecosystem so that I am profitable.
0: From a financial perspective, is there inherent risk with trying to be innovative and and getting closer to this regenerative model of farming you're talking about?
2: That's a very good question. And there is always risk. And each one of us as individuals has a different tolerance to risk. There is a risk financially in that the vast majority of farmers and ranchers, in order to continue to farm and ranch each year, have to borrow large amounts of, of capital. There's very large capital costs up front. You have a lot of money tied up. It's tied closely to federal farm programs. And many farmers and ranchers don't like to hear me say this, but but. The vast majority of them, their main income is tied to those federal farm programs. And the lending institutions are not going to loan them money unless they follow the status quo. They're being supported by uh, the taxpayers of the United States. And they realize that and they're going, this is no way to really make a living, support a family. And then they come to us and they say, "Okay, how do we go about changing? And so we start with education. Here's how we can increase your profitability because the vast majority of farmers are over-applying nutrients, these synthetic nutrients. And just through proper soil testing and education, we start cutting back on the amount of their inputs. That saves them money, increases their profitability. They see the change in their soil. I can share story after story after story on, on how we've been able to help people make a better life not only for themselves, but for future generations as well. Farmers and ranchers, yes, they could be part of the problem, and they are part of the climate problem, but they can be a greater part of the solution. All of us out there as a society, we want more carbon taken out of the atmosphere putting back into the soil cycle we want clean air we want clean water we want profitable rural communities we want to revitalize our rural communities we want nutrient-dense food for us and our children and grandchildren so let's come together as a society I tell people all I ever wanted to do was raise cows. I just enjoy livestock. And that's all I ever really wanted to do. But I also tell people that, you know, I truly believe that God put me through those four years for a reason and he blessed me with a big mouth and I know how to use it. And I go share my story with people and hopefully it's made a difference to some.
0: Like the symphony of sound on Gabe's ranch, His voice is one of many calling for change in agriculture practices. But like farming, sweeping improvements will take looking at change from the bottom up and the top down.
3: It is absolutely incredible that for an activity that humankind has been doing from the very beginning, which is producing food for for itself, we've we've concocted the system that is so fundamentally dysfunctional. My name is Shalini Unikrishnan. I'm a managing director and partner at BCG, and I lead the topic of food, land and nature in our climate and sustainability practice globally. I grew up in the city of delhi my passion uh where the the kind of problems i wanted to solve were really um around uh, livelihoods and around um you know economic development so much of the world um, is employed in agriculture um and that was where i kept intersecting with with the space
0: you know this is so interesting shalini so explain why and how you see intersectionality and sustainability sort of having to marry one another to, you know, to be fruitful?
3: So uh, if you are a company, you are a government, you're a single individual, you're all really interconnected and um, issues around environment are linked to issues around health. They're linked to issues around education. They're linked to issues around empowerment, equity. And that's what makes this space really hard to solve in, in some ways, but also really important to solve um, in, in others. It is an incredibly globally interconnected system that starts to fall apart whenever there's one climate event that happens in one place. The statistics of what is likely to happen to our own food production, to what's going to happen to our supply of fish, to what's going to happen to our natural systems over the next 20 years or so um, are, um, are astounding and um, they really should wake us up to want a fundamental transformation.
0: One way to spark that transformation is to zero in on tangible problems by measuring what Shalini calls the true value of food.
3: The value that one gets from food is not just the price that one pays for that food, but you have to take the holistic set of costs and the holistic value that it creates. And that includes the social costs, the health costs, um, the economic costs of producing that food.
0: True value refers to the costs associated with labor, farming, packaging, ingredients, and more. It's the price tag that should be on a package of food or a piece of fruit
3: the point of this is not to try to create the perfect equation for world peace right the point of this is to change the dialogue we're having around food uh and change the dialogue of how we measure its value uh in society and how we uh, understand the um the externalities created by food production we walk into a grocery store and we see an asparagus and pick it up and think, I'm doing something good. I'm doing something good for the planet. I'm eating healthier. This is better. Um, I'm not going to the frozen food aisle and picking something up. The reality and what makes this transition really complex is that there's a good chance that that asparagus that you picked up is actually worse for the planet than the frozen vegetable you may have picked up. Where you grow the food, how you how it's then processed, how far it has to be transported to get to you, um, what has to be done to preserve it in that state to get it to you, and how many people therefore have to handle it along the way, has a huge impact on the footprint of that
0: uh, of that food. For years, people like you were sounding the alarm from the sustainability lens and saying like current food systems are broken and this isn't sustainable. And now it feels like we have that crisis on our hands, coupled with the crisis of the supply chain, you know, breakdowns that we've been seeing, coupled with global financial instability, you know, inflation in the United States, hyperinflation elsewhere, um, income inequality gaps getting bigger. How do you see all of that, those external things also being interconnected and exacerbating this current issue of sustainability and food scarcity?
3: They are all um, reinforcing each other. They are all accelerating um, the the breakdowns in in many places. You take, for instance, vegetable oil, and how the prices are skyrocketing. It actually started well before the Ukraine crisis, right? A drought in Brazil, and uh, you know, soybean gets affected, and a typhoon in Malaysia, and you got palm oil getting affected, and. At the same time, right, the same land is being used for um, not just food, but also for feed, for, for livestock, and for fuel. And so we've got uh, an immense amount of pressure um, with this extractive mindset, trying to get the most out of this land. And there's all these climate factors, economic factors, political factors, um, all kind of fighting each other uh, in a lot of different ways. So uh, we've got a a, a, a very vicious concoction at the moment of a lot of different forces that are really pressuring the system and creating breakdowns.
0: But it's not all doom and gloom. We do have the tools to make a dent in this systemic crisis
3: this really is going to be a systems change. So everyone has a huge role to play. The financial sector needs to be rethinking its financial products and figuring out how to fund this transition. Farmers are going to need new equipment. When they move into regenerative farming, they're going to need new types of insurance. They're going to need new types of uh, uh, financial products to be able to buy the equipment and so on and so forth. And government needs to put in the right policy framework as well, right? So if a farmer makes the investment and really puts in the effort to grow something regeneratively, and then he drives it over to his processor and it's dumped in the back with everything else, that farmer has created no value for himself out of that production, right? So we need certifications, we need standards, we need um, data and measurements and a, a whole policy scaffolding around this. There's also a huge amount of subsidies going into agriculture everywhere in the world. And none of those are necessarily lined up to support farmers with climate smart agriculture. The list can go on and on. There's a lot of work to be done.
0: (laughs) Applying holistic solutions on a large scale will require using advanced data and AI technology to improve old school methods.
3: Data is fundamental to this agricultural revolution because a farmer needs to be convinced um, on a few different types of data. You know, what will this do to yield? What is it doing to their economics? What claims can they make? Um, and I think AI is going to be central to this revolution that's happening and this transformation that's happening. So you can use the satellite imagery across, you know, which is all available for free now, which and you can use all of that data and actually rapidly build a view of where, what is being grown. And then we can use that to very quickly, um, you know, calculate the right kind of infrastructure system that is needed to optimize the production in that country to feed uh, people, to be able to export, et cetera.
0: How do you see risk factoring in the equation when it comes to this switch and also the risk if we don't make this switch? Risk is
3: still an important part of um the 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 fuel that's going to power this transformation, but It needs to be a view of a longer-term risk. This is about creating resilience against the risk of supply chain shocks in the longer run. This is about creating uh, resilience to um, the kinds of adverse events that are likely to happen. I think this is
0: really about adapting. Everything you've been talking about with system shift and rethinking how we just think about food, these basic life source, how hopeful are you that we're able to do this?
3: So here's my, here's my optimistic view. I look at a world like if you take livestock and proteins, big part of the emissions, we're talking about how intractable it is. But at the same time, we see this enormous amount of development in alternative proteins. Some of that is about people embracing plant-based proteins um, and, and really going back to nature to rediscover new ingredients and, uh, and new products this is a big movement these are big changes and they're being made by everyday choices by us in grocery stores and they're being made by entrepreneurs and technologists who are discovering new products um so i i actually feel that human ingenuity um and uh, our our willingness to come back to nature to rediscover nature if those two things come together i think that this can be solved this is about not seeing nature as risk, but seeing nature as the insurance that we have and going back and rediscovering our connection to nature.
0: We began the season of American Metamorphosis with a line from artist and writer Leonora Carrington, who said the task of the right eye is to peer into the telescope while the left eye peers into the microscope. If we don't look through the microscope and scrutinize the small details right in front of us, then we risk miscalculating the larger consequences that will shape our futures. We must understand the duality of our nature in order to live within it. We must work hard to understand the fine details and the big picture. Or for Gabe Brown, we have to know the tiny teaspoons of soil as intimately as the acres and acres of land.
2: I tell people that I'm very blessed to live Here in North Dakota on a ranch that focuses on life and not death. And I tell them, back when I was in the conventional mindset, I used to wake up every morning trying to decide what I was going to kill that day. Was it going to be a weed, a pest, a fungal disease? I was going to kill something. Now I wake up every morning, how do I get more life on my ranch? And it's much more enjoyable working with life than it is with death.
0: For Gabe, it's about teaching others that we already have the tools to revive our food and our planet, but we have to believe in the collective power of using them. And that starts with rekindling our love and our respect for the land that we're relying on to provide for us. I feel like farmers have soil in their under their nails and in their blood, but not, you know, if you're outside agriculture, you don't. So what can we do to rekindle our understanding of nature that might actually help us in the future.
2: One of the things we do on our ranch, we have an open door policy. Anybody can drive on our ranch at any time and look at anything. And we usually get, during the summer, we'll get uh, close to 2,500 people coming up our driveway to see what we're doing. That's a good thing. We encourage it because I would much rather you come and talk to me and ask me to explain what I'm doing than for you to hear somebody maybe saying something different about us farmers and ranchers. Get to know what we're doing and then source your food accordingly.
0: You're gonna have a few more visitors to North Dakota, Gabe.
2: That's just fine, we welcome them.
0: Tirani, you've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Thanks to our entire Atlantic Rethink team, Christian Nielsen, Alona Minkowski, Leo Sepkowitz, CJ Chesade Ferroni, Emily Beaner, Roy Siegel, Eleanor Bell Fox, Nimi Budzinki, Devin Rochford, and Maddie Lusbruck. And of course, thanks to our brilliant editor, Evan Viola. Thanks for making me sound so good. Thanks as well to Nidhi Sina, Brooke Boyke, Emily Aptica, Danny Werfel, Chris Grantham, Cordelia Chancellor, Samantha Seitz, and Amy Trojan at Boston Consulting Group. Lastly, thanks to all of the brilliant guests who have lent us their voices and their ideas to shape this season. And thanks, of course, to you, the listener. Stay tuned for the next season of American Metamorphosis, where we continue to unpack the forces that shape our changing world and take them on together.